Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This February, Angarda Siakana will celebrate 100 years since their formation in Ireland. As careers go in the force, few can rival Pat Marys and the success he's had in solving intricate and serious crimes. Every detective's career has to start somewhere, and as previously told, Pat's began in an underwhelming stint playing cardboard cutout on Marion Road. But when you ask him when things really began, he gives you a different answer. For Pat, things only really took off around 2001. I was promoted, sent to Clonus for two and a half years, then uh, transferred to Balbriggan where I took up there as detective sergeant. For a young detective trying to work their way up the ranks, Pat's stint in Balbriggan was a successful one. By 2003, he'd won his first merit award, an achievement received by clamping down on drug dealing and making a number of large seizures in the district. By 2004, he was on the beat, busy solving Rachel Callaly's murder and making a name for himself within the force. But back in March 2001, Pat would find himself at the beginning of a case that would become, in his opinion, the first major crime in which he would lead from the front. This cat and mouse chase spans three different countries and would eventually take Pat four whole years to deliver justice to the victim's family. The Making of a Detective is brought to you by the Irish Sun. I mean Doyle. superintendent ringing me he says that fruit's after going missing I think his car is after being found up at the hill of Hoth he says so you, you might go up and have a look he looked at me and he said you better sit down and I did and then he looked around at my mum and dad and, and everyone said you all better sit down this is our second case of Pat Mary's career and will be delivered in multiple parts if you've enjoyed the series so far Take a moment and leave us a review in your podcast app. Or even better, tell a friend about the show. Mary and I met at the school gate, primary school in Stamullen. And I didn't want to go into school because I was half crying. So she took me by the hand and brought me into school. That was the very first day I met Mary and our relationship just was building from that day on. Some friendships are worth their weight in gold. People you can rely on, confide in, 
the people that make you laugh. Those friends whose lives are so entwined in your own that your shared memories are some of the fondest ones you hold dear. That was and is the case for Sinead Howard Byrne and her best friend Mary Goff. Sinead speaks from her kitchen in her home in Stamullen. Less than 100 metres away from her family home and a stone's throw away from the Goffs. Their friendship is a uniquely special one. Inseparable from day one, their whole childhood was spent together. Their teens and their twenties too. They came as a package. She had not got lots of confidence, neither would I. That's probably part of why we got on so well. But she was quiet and she was funny, but she just just was reserved. She was a reserved girl. Uh, and a lovely, kind, caring girl, loved animals. She always, grown up, had a dog called Jasper. The years flowed on, and the girls started secondary school together, sharing sweet and funny memories in class, and often trying to avoid it. <laughs> the school principal came down in his car, and he spotted the two of us walking home, knew we weren't supposed to be walking home, and he turned the car and came back and we were absolutely mortified. And he came up to the two of us and said, where are you going? And we said, we were heading home and I had my letter, so I was all right. But he took Mary back into the car and headed back to school with a massive big red face on her. She was so mortified. It was unbelievable. But yes, we, we did lots of things like that. In 1989, their friendship escalated into something quite different. A tragic incident that would further tighten their bond. Mary was part of our family. She was a huge part of our family. She was really... Her her own dad died when she was very young, so my dad and her dad were friends. So we took Mary in, really, like a sister. Mary was like a sister and a daughter to us as well. As they grew older, boys eventually came on the scene. Sinead met her husband, Pat, when they were just 16. And Mary came with us. Like, we went out for our dinner for Valentine's night to the Rossnery in Drada at the time, and Mary came along with us. So there was three of us for our Valentine's dinner. <laughs> Mary found love too. In 1993, she met Colin Whelan in the Huntsman Inn in Gormanston, County Meath. The two were in their late teens and hit it off immediately. Colin had dark hair and was a tall, well-built, handsome man. Mary was short, with brunette hair and dark eyes, and took huge pride in her appearance. As a pair, they looked great together, and she seemed happier than ever. We all loved going out for food, and then they would come to our house and have pizza nights and have movie nights and always just doing things together. It was no different, really. We were, we were very happy. As four, we were very happy. Let's rejoin Pat Murray on Thursday the 1st of March, 2001. A blustery morning on Greg's Lane, County Navan. Pat's at home in bed, in a house he built himself. A moment to savour for the busy detective after getting a rare full night's sleep. It's funny how it goes. I left my phone charging in the kitchen of my house and uh, when I got up the next morning, I went down to check the phone and get my breakfast and I saw there was 40 missed calls on my phone and I was looking through it and most of them were from my superintendent and I said, oh God, I'm in trouble here. Wasting no time, Pat picked up his phone and rang his superintendent back. He knew a bollocking would await him on the other end of the line. 
Oh, he said, it's great that you answered the phone. I said, well, I had it charging in the kitchen and I was didn't hear, like, you know, well, it must be great to live in such a big house that you can't hear your phone ring, you know. He says, anyway, luckily, he says, we had a, a death here last night. A woman uh, allegedly fell down the stairs and uh, she died and we have the house preserved, he says. By the commotion caused and the missed calls, he felt it might be more than just a simple accident. We took a statement from the husband who was saying that there was only two of them in the house at the time and she, his wife fell down the stairs. But he says, we were above at the hospital, myself and Garda Jim O'Byrne, and he says, a cute nurse up there saw a scratch on his chest and we asked him to be examined, you know, for shock purposes and all that. And he took his shirt off and there was a big scratch mark on his chest. I will never forget the night that I heard the news. We were in bed, it was late. I lived down the road in Mountain View and there was a knock on the door. My dad knocked on the door. My husband ran downstairs and I was halfway down the stairs. And he opened the door and I knew by looking at my dad's face, it was bad. So I looked and I just said, who? I knew, I just knew it was said who. And he said, Mary. And I said, no. No, no, it can't, it can't be my Mary. And he shook his head to say, yes, it is, it's Mary. She had a fall down the stairs. And I just remember sitting back onto the middle of my own staircase and thinking, no, this, this can't be happening. And start thinking, how could this have happened? And then I said, maybe she fell over a muffin. And um, we decided, Dad said, do you want to go up to the hospital? Up to Bowmount, and I said yes. So he took my husband and I, dad drove us up to the hospital, and it just went from there. It was absolutely horrendous. It was devastating news. The scratch on Colin Whelan's chest didn't look good. Still, though, Pat knew it was important to keep an open mind. His superintendent wanted him to go and view the body. So Pat visited the Dublin City Mortuary. It was a place he'd become more familiar with as his career progressed. There he met Dr. Mary Cassidy, Ireland's deputy state pathologist at the time. A tall, blonde and good-humoured Glaswegian who would go on to have one of Ireland's most distinguished medical careers. Pat sat outside her office, waiting for her report on what must have happened. Then she came out and she said to me, uh, I have good news and bad news. And I says, well, I says, hit me with the good news first. And she says, well, the good news is that I'm finished the post-mortem, but if it was any other pathologist, you'd be waiting another four hours. And I said, that's good news. And what's the bad news? And she says, you have a murder on your hands. This wasn't something that particularly shocked Pat. The early signs from the nurse's statement indicated that things weren't right. I says, I don't mean to sort of doubt you, I says, but how sure are you that this is a, a murder or should this girl has been strangled, come in here and I'll show you. The two entered the examination room, a cold and clean lab-like facility, not too dissimilar from what you might see in a movie. Mary's body was lying in front of them. It was hard not to feel sadness for her. Dr. Cassidy points to the first indications of an attack. She says the, the hemorrhaging under the eyes and uh, 
swollen tongue and he says she said she has a, a mark on the side of her neck here which is a burn mark which was she was strangled with something and uh, there's no doubt she is strangled and I said look at she's wearing uh, a necklace there I could see a, a chain I said could she have fallen and that caught in the banister no 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 she says take it from me she says absolutely she was strangled with a ligature like you know with force and there's, it's nothing got to do with anything else and one of the other things Mary Cassidy Romy says her injuries are not consistent with a fall down the stairs and she showed me the burn marks on the bottom of Mary Goff she said look it appears she has these burn marks from being dragged so uh, I rang my superintendent and I told him he says well how are you getting on well I said you want to sharpen your pencil I said because we have a mortar when Pat's lining up a new investigation, he's always keen to follow his process. An instant room is established, and the Guardi get to work on various aspects of the case. Before moving on to interviews and statements, Pat's Ground Zero is always dependent on what information is there at hand. And the first thing I did was, I said we should look at the alarm system. Pat Murray is the type of detective that could work 20 hours in a day without hesitation. Throughout his career, he spent long, lonely hours upskilling and trying to get ahead of any technology that might aid him in a case. One example of this was a qualification in ham radios, essentially non-commercial radio transmission. To get the qualification, I had to build a radio and stuff like that. And uh, I knew about pulses and electrics in that respect. And I knew that it was a phone watch system they had in the house. 
Pat knew that with their particular system, even if the alarm was powered off, signals would still register into its internal log if a window or door was opened in the house. And I said, we should get that printed out. And that's exactly what we did. We got onto an engineer in phone watch and uh, they came out and downloaded the log from the uh, alarm system and they were able to say and the time Colin and Mary came back into the house that evening and from the time she was killed or he rang the 999 there was no other interference with doors or windows or anything that uh, no one else could have got in like you know or open doors or anything of that nature so here we had Colin Whelan in the house with his wife and him admitting that he was the only person there. The alarm system verifying that, that no one else could have got in. And we had the pathologist saying that this girl has been strangled, you know. So what does that leave us to think other than that Colin Whelan killed his wife? It was going to be important for Pat to have an in-depth description of Colin's account of that night. If Dr Cassidy was right, and this was a murder investigation, Pat would be able to pick out any discrepancies in the story. The thing was, though, Dr. Cassidy was never wrong. She was extremely skilled at her job, so Pat had no reason to believe that Mary hadn't been murdered. Colin says that he was in the house. Um, he was watching MT USA or whatever. This is Music Television USA. Welcome back to New York, and this is a very famous American car, an Oldsmobile. Although these and his wife went up to have a shower. And he heard tum tum tum. And he discovered that she had fallen down the stairs. He said there was no one else in the house, only himself and his wife. And that he rang 999 and uh, the ambulance arrived. When the emergency services got to the scene, uh, Mary was wrapped in a duvet and under that there was a towel that was bloodied. And the thing about the, the duvet, he was keeping the body warm because there's no doubt Mary had been killed earlier than he had rang the emergency services. Colin told Pat that the emergency responder on the phone had asked him to wrap the duvet around Mary's body while waiting for the ambulance to arrive. But that call was recorded and there was no talk about any duvet whatsoever, so that was another lie, you know. Also, we seized the phone from the house and he has was given the impression he was doing CPR. Now he said that there was foam and blood in her mouth and this, that and the other, but he, he, he didn't have foam and blood on him and there was none on the phone. So he was obviously standing there doing nothing like, you know. So if there was any semblance of life in Mary, he didn't care like, you know, that was it. When Colin Whelan left the house that night, the Guardi preserved the scene immediately and nobody was let back in. So everything was preserved and in the bedroom, on forensic analysis and technical examination, we were able to discover between the ensuite door and the main door of the bedroom, on the wallpaper, there was... Um, when you were being strangled, you blood vessels burst in your nose and you emit a mist of blood that's not visible to the naked eye and uh, it was on the wallpaper between those two doors so we knew that she was strangled in that location when she came out off of the ensuite. We also discovered that the robe that he had been wearing, his dressing gown robe, the belt on it had Mary's saliva and DNA on the middle part 
off that belt and it was taut. You could see it had been pulled and, and we verified that through scientific analysis and we were able to put her DNA on that at that point, you know. So we were quite satisfied the murder weapon was the belt off the dressing gown. One of the skills that makes a great detective is decision making. Some decisions are based around facts or information at hand, but others have to be based around emotion and the victim's loved ones. Pat was in a difficult position. As the weeks went on in the case, he knew that he would have to inform the Goff family that all is not what it seemed. I remember discussing it with the superintendent and saying, look, we'll have to be very tactful how we tell the family because it says the two families are very united and they're very close. And I says, we'll have to take a certain approach instead of blurting it out like, you know. And he says, what do you suggest? And I says, I think the best way to go about it is we'll call up to the Goff family and tell them that, you know, we're making inquiries and that we are not happy but with the findings of the post-mortem matched against what Colin Whelan is saying happened that night. And that's just leaving it open without saying anything else. But then I says, we'll bring it on then to a stage. We tell them like, you know, she has been murdered, but they may have had some sort of platform to land on to get the next bad news, you know. So we agreed on that and we done that. We paid the Goff family a visit. Pat drove out to Stamullen County Mead to visit the Goff family home. He knew that the news would devastate them. And I, we spoke to Marie Goff, the mother, and her sons. And we made it clear that, uh, look, we're investigating this and we want to be thorough. And with all deaths, were very thorough. And that uh, what Colin Whelan is saying happened that night is not consistent with what Mary Cassidy has told us she believes happened. So uh, we, we're looking into that at the moment, like, you know. The following day, in a search for more definitive information... One of Mary's brothers drove to Balbriggan Garda Station. He wanted answers. He was brought to the superintendent's office and he was sat down. And he wanted to know, what do you mean Mary Cassidy's findings are now? Colin, surely she fell down the stairs or wherever. And there was no other way of breaking the news from just to tell him straight out. And we told him straight out, look, at, uh, we believe Mary was murdered. We believe she was strangled. And uh, we can confirm that. And her injuries are not consistent with a fall. And uh, that's what we're taking it from. We're, we're investigating a murder now. Now the poor chap nearly fell off the seat. And what do you do? Do you pussyfoot around? I don't believe in pussyfooting around, but I believe the approach we took gave them a little bit of cushioning for what was to come. I was over my mum and dad's house across the road and my we were all there. And Peter, Mary's brother, and his wife Liz came in to tell us the dreadful news. He just said, he looked at me and he said, you better sit down. And I did. And then he looked around at my mom and dad and, and everyone said, you all better sit down. And then he told us this wasn't a fall down the stairs. This wasn't an accident. We found it very hard to take it in. It was silence in the room for a long time couldn't really understand what was going on Colin was one of Sinead's best friends they'd grieved together about her loss she couldn't wrap her head around the news it was too painful to I didn't believe at the start that this could have been Colin I really didn't I would have stood up for Colin at the start not having an idea that he could have done what he did do and I thought 
I didn't see any wrong in Colin at all, and I thought must, this must be a mistake. So it took me a long time to get my head round. It wasn't a mistake. I can't even really think about what happened to Mary. I never, I never think about the, on that night. I try not to think of what happened to her because I can't let that in on me. Colin Whelan was a talented computer programmer, a job that, in 2001, very few people could do. He had his own company called Data Motions, which was contracted by Irish Permanent, a financial services company, and he worked full-time in their Dublin headquarters. He was on a very good wage. Uh, uh, he was looked after extremely well by Irish Permanent. Uh, in actual fact, I wouldn't mind earning that type of money now. But anyway, the fact that he was a computer programmer and he was now suspect for the murder of his wife, we said we would look at his computer background. And we said we conduct a search in his own house, obviously, and then we do a search in his workplace. Pat and another officer drove out to the office in the hope to pick up any information that might aid their case. There he met a manager in the business who showed them to Colin's workspace. It was one of these big, huge desks, but there was two computers on it. And they told us that computer was belonging to a lady. I'll never forget the name because it it's a lovely name, Anne Wheatleyam. And uh, she said, she's gone now. She's working in another part of Irish Permanent. And so this sort of twigged me, like, what's stopping Colin Wheeling using that computer? We seized the computers and that. And I remember we took the whole desk of it and brought the whole shebang. And there was even a waste paper basket at his desk and there was one of those yelly stickers in it and it had on it roses are red and violets are blue you know something I love you or this type of rubbish on it and uh, I uh, said Flipper we bring that we bring the bin and all like you know so they gave us full access to the proxy server that recorded everything and we were able to search through there were 14,000 logs a day recorded on the system and we had to go through each one of those logs. In today's world, a computer search in a case of this magnitude seems like an obvious path for Pat to investigate. But that really wasn't the case in 2001. Back then, just over one quarter of Irish homes would have had access to a computer, and even less with access to the internet. In fact, this would be the first time a Garda investigation had ever formally tried to access computer data to build evidence in a murder case. A small detail in Pat's career, but, Another detail that distinguished him from the rest. Even now, 20 years on, Pat still can't believe how much they were able to derive from Colin's PC. He had been looking up sites on asphyxiation and strangulation and loss of consciousness and all of this type of stuff. And we discovered that on the day that Mary was murdered, he was looking up uh, sites on strangulation. So the case was growing. Colin's grim search history stretched long before Mary's death. This was something he'd been planning for nearly a year. On July 4th, in the year 2000, he first searched the term asphyxia into an online dictionary to check its spelling. Six weeks later, on August 17th, he typed in asphyxiate, and a couple of minutes later, how to asphyxiate. A few months passed before he returned to the subject, and on January 2nd, he spent hours looking up choking, smothering, and blocking the air supply. 
things further escalated. And on January 29th, death by asphyxia. And by February 19th, nine days before Mary's murder, he went on to search causes of death within seconds. An instant death. It was horrendous. Like we discovered then he was researching uh, a guy in North Carolina called Henry Lewis Wallace, who was convicted of nine murders of women. And then each time he strangled the, his victim without leaving a, a strangle mark. And uh, he used a towel uh, on seven of the murders and he used a towel to mop up the blood and that, like, you know, and he'd be at the scene himself when the police had arrived, like, you know. There's no doubt in our mind from the forensic evidence and from the fact that Colin Whelan had said that there was only two of them in the house, that Mary Goff had gone up to have her shower, a wash, and he followed her up. He got ready his robe, uh, rope and uh, waited for her to come out of the ensuite, and as she did, he strangled her. Mary didn't have a chance. She stood up five foot four inches as Colin towered over her, tightening his pull of the ligature. But he didn't realise that Mary could actually fight for her life and twisted round and got to scratch him and and, and twisting round, uh, you know, he he, uh, lost a little bit of control and burned her neck with the rope. And... uh, the towel would have moved, leaving a lot of Mary's blood and stuff. He then um, dragged her down the stairs, which led to the burn marks on her bottom. And he got the duvet and covered her in the duvet. And with the towel, he mopped up the bit of blood and stuff around her mouth and nose and that, you know. Uh, he didn't do any CPR. He made the phone call and waited. PC had more to tell, much more in fact. While researching ways to kill his wife, Colin also found time to meet people online. The post-it note found in his work bin, roses are red, violets are blue. That wasn't written for Mary. It was written for a young woman named Helen Shepherd. In late December 2000, Colin and Helen met in an internet chat room under the name Celtic Tackle. He began what would become an intense cyber affair. It was literally like a stream of consciousness. They would get up in the morning, he would text her, like it was this online chat, kind of a precursor to maybe what you would now do on WhatsApp. Siobhan Gaffney is a former journalist and barrister from Dublin. She's the author of Till Death to Do Us Part, a 2005 account of the Colin Whelan case. And it was a lot of kind of in the early stages of emojis didn't exist at the time but it was a lot of like little you know using the keyboard to do smiley faces and winky faces and all that kind of stuff it was quite kind of childish in some regards and it was a lot of saying how much they were going to get on when they would meet and what they would do and their future every day kind of messages over and back over and back over and back but they did have like names for each other both colin and helen would refer to him as Mr. Bear and Mr. Furry. The content of the messages soon escalated. Colin would begin to write her adoring notes and statements professing his growing love. 
One email in February 2001, weeks before Mary's death, contained a 500-word poem called Mr. Bear's Ode to a Welsh Bird. A segment read, Exhaling of old breath, my insecurities conceive fear. My stomach filled with flutters, can't believe I'm really here. An embrace is made, I lower my face. Lips touch softly, and Mr. Bear's pulses race. I'm not going to question why, why I've created this bond. With this stable Welsh lady, who I am so fond. You never know some day, I wish I may visit. To the land of Welsh dragons, and most beautiful people in it. Love, Mr. Bear. Believe it or not, Colin's poetry left Helen enamoured. Their connection was mutual, and Pat was the person who'd have to break up the love in. Now, I travelled to Wales, uh, a place called Tonnerapandi in the Rhondda Valley. He met a Welsh policeman, and the pair drove to her house. From reading some of their correspondence, Pat knew she had fallen for him. They knocked on her door to deliver the news. And she invited us in, and she said, what's all this about Colin Whelan? What's all this about Colin? She says, I haven't heard from him from the 28th of February. So she says, is he all right? Oh, I said, there's not a bother in him. I says, but uh, I said, uh, you know, his wife is dead. And she said, yeah, he told me she was killed in a car crash. I says, no, 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 she wasn't killed in a car crash. I says, she was only killed the other night. And uh, Colin is a suspect, and we believe he killed her. And the poor woman just collapsed on the ground. Pat sympathised with the young woman. None of this was her fault. You're trying to break the news as easy as you can, but like at the end of the day, I just came out with it, like, you know, and she collapsed. And I remember one of the lads saying to me, he says, what'd you do that for, you know? I said, look, there's no easy way around this. But she understood then what we were there for and why. And I remember going into her kitchen and she had a big magnet on the fridge door and a picture of Colin Whelan. I remember taking it down and showing her and I said, this is the Colin Whelan we're talking about. She said, that's Colin Whelan. She said that she had every correspondence that he had sent to her. She had kept it, printed it out and kept it in a chronological order. And we said we wanted to see that and we needed to take a statement off her, but we certainly weren't going to take one off her now, like, you know. Helen's shock quickly turned to anger. You know, she had her son and, you know, she says, no, I'll be fine. I want to make a statement. So we had to download her computer, which took uh, 12 hours to do. Helen was a kind, young and quite vulnerable girl. Her mother had recently passed away and in the midst of her grief, she decided to do some volunteer work in a local cancer charity. But the charity gave her a, a laptop to facilitate her in doing the work. And this opened her up to chat rooms and stuff which she was never involved in before. And she went on to try it out, I guess, like, you know. And she was vulnerable. It was a bad time in her life. And uh, she went in and she saw this guy, Celtic Tackle, who was Colin Whelan, putting himself up as a different guy. He put himself up as a bodybuilder and looking for a relationship and this, that and the other. And she resonated to it and chatted him on over a period of time. He confided that, he, like, you know, that wasn't a picture of him and he sent the right picture and she was even more hammered, like, you know, but anyway, look, at that was it. When Pat got back to Ireland, 
he's able to get a full account of their exchanges to one another. And you could see right up until today, she wanted to come over that weekend and meet Colin. And he kept putting her off saying he was in Germany and work and he couldn't meet her. And she wanted to come over, that he'd come over and meet her in Wales the following weekend or whatever, like, you know, and that was it. So it was getting fairly hot and heavy, but it took her leading her on, like, you know. Nobody could measure what the Goff family went through. It was absolutely devastating for them all. She lost her only daughter and the lads lost her only sister. You could never measure how how devastating that is. What they went through was hell and in, they're still going through hell because it doesn't get any easier. Mary won't be back and that's the really, really hard part to take in. Next time on The Making of a Detective. She was looking at the newspaper one night and the Goffs on their own band had done an article on Colin and and he pressed up. The woman saw the picture in the paper and she read and she says, oh my good God, that's the guy Key and Sweeney. The Making of a Detective is brought to you by The Irish Sun. The series is written and produced by me, Ian Doyle. We will be back next Thursday for our second and final episode on the murder of Mary Goff. If you want to learn more about the life and career of Detective Pat Murray, check out his 2019 book, The Making of a Detective by Penguin Books.